Chris. Welcome to Speaking Destroy, episode 42. Speaking Destroy features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Mark Hellman, guitarist of the band Suicide Silence. It's a very in-depth, very candid, very cool, very personal conversation. It touches on psychedelics, ayahuasca, Catholicism, the occult, creative hiatuses, separating the personal from the professional, the making of the band self-titled album with Ross Robinson, the loss of one of Mark's close friends in high school, the death of frontman Mitch Lucker, the ego, and much, much more. Remember, the best way to support this podcast is to jump into Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform of choice, Spotify, wherever you're listening. Write a nice little review and leave a five-star rating. Those really, really help. You can keep up with everything No Prize From God at noprizefromgod.com, where you can also find all the different social handles. You can keep up with me at ryanjdowney.com. And you can check out the other podcasts in the Pop Curse Podcast Network at popcurse.com. So here it is, my conversation with Mark Hailman of Suicide Silence. This is No Prize From God. chatting just a little bit before uh i hit record uh but you were telling me you had checked out some of the episode with the great liam wilson yeah yeah it's it's funny because i was wanting to freshen up and that the fact that liam was on this you said that he was kind of one of the beacons or pillars of why you even started this podcast and that you asking me to do this this is like the exact uh like auspicious sign that you know these things that i follow in my life you know since this is kind of a spiritual podcast like that's yeah. a perfect example of you asked me to do this podcast we've talked about this briefly i'm like oh let's see which one i want to listen to there's liam and liam like you said one of the most interesting dudes and he he's made a giant difference in my life 
you know, wow. like he, you said he was the first person that mentioned ayahuasca to you. Yep. He, he introduced me to ayahuasca as well. Uh, and that is a whole tangent on its own, but Liam is like a special dude. And if you listen to that podcast, you'll know, but yeah, that was, I was like, Oh, of course, you know, this podcast was almost inspired by this awesome guy that really did put me on a whole other path. So super cool. I can see that. And and I, I'm not just saying this because of the beard, the hair and the extreme metal that you both perform, <laughs> but you remind me of one another. They're hmm. very similar uh, vibes and uh, energy, for lack of a better word, just a, a certain dynamic, a certain persona that you project just in, in conversation, just in hanging out very sort of you're both very soothing presences, often in environments that are chaotic whether it's a live show the music that you perform or just the the craziness of everything that goes on behind the scenes to make a living as a professional musician well you yeah that's both, a, that's, uh, that's a very that's centered a big, it seems that's a compliment too i mean i look up to him i think he's uh he just seems so educated and way his disciplines are instilled in him and he's a uh, yeah he's a he's a really awesome dude so I remind you energetically I can see that I think that him and I if 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 he's at a show it's like oh I want to hang out with Liam you know yeah there's there's the K there's there's chaos and then there's people that it's like they're on that even keel you know it's like they I think we thrive in the chaos but we don't even really know why we do mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just it's just there and we're so used to it and it's it's a part of all of this who we are I mean this is it's punk rock heavy metal I mean it's not all about being balanced and disciplined <laughs> yeah and you, and you guys have very much that uh eye of the hurricane you know the 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 yeah there's a storm like happening around you and you're both just like kind of observing <laughs> and you know and 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 humor you both have good good natured humor about you which is um also something you don't necessarily encounter as much as you might want to in in this thing of ours yeah, that's super cool. I mean, really, I didn't even Liam when I first met him, it was Warp Tour 2010. And that was probably at like the pinnacle of my partying. And I was like 23. It's just ripping and raging all the time. And we were and Dillinger was on Warp Tour and they were kind of older, more experienced, you know. And uh me and Liam didn't even really hit it off that much on there, like on that tour. We spoke here and there, but I think because I was probably partying so much, we didn't we didn't hang out that much, but then, uh, when Eddie's first tour in Australia, Soundwave, Dillinger was on that too. And, uh, that was a big, that was just a super, everything was different. You know, I mean, Mitch had just passed. This is our first tour with a new singer and everybody's watching us. And I had quit drinking and I was first time not drinking on tour and Liam was just like this, this perfect individual to hang out with and talk to about what was going on in my head while that was all going on. And I was just so, I felt so out of place and just couldn't really find my groove, like uh, socially stage, sure. Playing shows and all that stuff. It's kind of second nature, like getting on stage, you're just going to throw it down and it, it comes to you, but being off stage, being around a bunch of people, Liam was the guy, you know, and uh, yeah, I was just telling him I was having trouble with uh, not drinking and finding 
where to hang. And he, that was when he said, he's like, you know, he's like, I just met this guy at Burning Man. <laughs> yeah. And, every, and, and then every, every, you know, everything is good after that. You're like, oh, you met somebody at Burning Man. I'm huh? like, well, tell me about this. Uh, um, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he, he's putting together like, you know, uh, ayahuasca tours or where they, they'll, a traveling group will, you know, basically like a band you know and they'll come through and they're doing they're doing these ceremonies and i was like you know what i've heard of this before i had plenty of experience with psychedelics and uh i was like you know i've, I've kind of always wanted to do that and been told you don't really go look for it it kind of finds you mm. again like with the with, it's it's just the way i've lived my my life like following signs and everything kind of has this like i use the word auspicious like an auspicious synergy that I've, I've always just followed my intuition with that. And when he told me, I was like, you know, I'm super interested. Got home from that tour, got an email like, Oh, we're going to be in Joshua tree in two weeks. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Okay. Wow. So that's like, there that's was like right there. Two, yeah. hour, two hours from me. So Liam, Liam's <laughs> Liam, uh, definitely. He put me in the right place at the right time for all of that. And, super thankful for it like it's still something that i haven't done it in like four years but once i did it the first time it was almost like once a year i was i was going and sitting and drinking ayahuasca with a bunch of totally wildly different people than i'm used to being around on tour or in the music industry yeah so and, and this and this podcast right here it's all just it's all exactly the way that i feel like my life works <laughs> it's pretty uh, i'm blessed you know not to use the cliche yeah. term. Not to, not to put definitely. the hashtag in front of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what? And now that you mentioned it, and I might've said this to him on the, on the episode as well. Not only was he the first person that ever said the word ayahuasca to me, he's the first person I've known in my life that said they went to Burning Man who wasn't making a joke. <laughs> you know, I was like, I didn't, I didn't realize that I would know people that actually went and that even just changed my mind about, even with that, my perception of even what that whole thing was, because here's someone who I take seriously going to something that I uh, found to be unserious in my limited uh, understanding of it at the time. And since then, you know, I've obviously met, you know, at least a half a dozen people who go regularly and have uh, compelling experiences there. And, and, and also they tend to have like the raised eyebrow of like, like, hey, I know what's I know why this is corny, but I also get you know what you're supposed oh. to get out of it kind of thing oh for sure yeah i i, I too have been to burning man <laughs> <laughs> see that i can i can add you which, to that list <laughs> yeah yeah which also i same thing if i tell somebody that i've been to burning man it's like i got to explain and yeah. give the whole context and everything because it, yeah, it is a wild it's a wild thing and just like anything it can kind of get exploited and seem like it's not what it really is because yeah. it also isn't what it really is. If you're there, you're like, well, this is that, but it's also that. So there's at the end of the Comedy Central roast of James Franco, there's a moment where they have kind of this like candid, uh, you get to hear a little bit of the live mic as the closing credits are going and all the comedians and stuff are, uh, you know, hugging and chit chatting on, on the dais after the show's over. And someone, I think it's Bill Hader, asks Seth Rogen, like, oh, what are you doing after? And he's like, I'm going to Burning Man. <laughs> and uh, the other person laughs, like, ha, ha, ha. He's like, no, no, really, you know. 
and, and yeah, it only seems like it has that air to it of like, no, 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 I'm seriously, I'm going like I've, I've gone or whatever. Uh, so what were you raised with initially? Was there any kind of framework from either your parents or extended family in terms of religious ideas or spiritual ideas? And, and what do you remember about kind of first wrapping your head around that stuff as a kid? Well, um, my mom, she worked at a Catholic church. She was a youth administrator for St. Catherine's of Alexandria. And she was very strict with religion growing up and would go to church every Sunday. She wanted me to be an altar boy. I would wow. go to CCD. I can't, I think it might've been once or twice a week. I can't remember. I used to go all the time. Um, she put me through the whole thing, get baptized, communion, confession. Um, and at, at that, at that was, that was when I was, you know, single digits, really young and hadn't really begun to explore that for myself yet. It was really just kind of being for lack of a better term forced. And, um, when I was, I think I was seven or eight I did my first confession and I I, I always kind of just felt like it like church was kind of hokey like I just even as a kid I was just like this doesn't really seem like something I want to be a part of everybody I could just tell everybody was exaggerating a lot about it like it, you would meet someone at church and the way that they are it's just like you can't really be this this isn't really who you are like you you have to have another persona than this you know everything is about church you know attitude um, but when I did my first commute or my first confession, we had a, a party, like a church party at my house and all the people that my mom worked with were here. And, uh, it's funny cause I'm actually in the room <laughs> in the same room that uh, I, I have this memory from right now. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually really, it's really strange. I'm living in the same, me and my mom are living in the same house right now. We're building a new house over on the same property. So we're sharing space and it's, the first time I've lived with my mom in quite a while. So there's a lot yeah. of these kind of memories coming back to. Yeah. And um, it's, yeah. And it's the same place when you were single digits. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in my old room right now. It's like, it's kind of crazy. Um, But the memory is I remember the, we had this party and I just didn't really feel, I didn't feel any different from, uh, from get it doing this confession. And it was supposed to, you're supposed to, you know, confess and be free of your sins kind of thing. And this was the first, my first realization of, yeah, I don't think I, be, I don't really think I believe this so much. I don't feel any different. Everyone's, there's a party around me right now and I'm supposed to feel like, you know, like, like an, an just fresh of some sort. And I remember wanting to just flee and go away. And I had to talk to everybody, uh, at that went to my mom's church and tell them how I was feeling. And I would imagine it embarrassed my mom a lot that I did this. But after that, my mom was just like, you know what? I could tell that you're you're thinking for yourself and it's like, I'm not going to force you to go through with all this stuff anymore. And, you know, if you, you can go to church when you want, or you have to go on Christmas or Easter or whatever, but like, you don't have to do as much of the CCD and Bible study stuff that I was doing at that point. Um, I mean, that was my first introduction to it. But then after that, I kind of began exploring it more on my own because I was kind of given that freedom. Mm. So then I started talking to my dad a lot more and realizing my dad was super spiritual, but much more like not he didn't abide by any sort of religion he just kind of 
was way into nature and you know and were your uh, parents together at this time or yeah 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 they were yeah they were together uh yeah until my dad passed 2019 from cancer um so yeah, i'm lucky for that they were it's crazy because they're kind of they were the opposite growing up like my dad was this kind of free thinking uh you know into anything he would read he would read anything listen to anybody talk no matter what religion they were um and my mom was always involved with the church so it was kind of like this broad spectrum kind of thing um and because of that once i got into high school um i was i did a independent where i go to high school i had like a church and i would almost get to pick my electives and pick what I was, what I was studying. And, um, and I picked world religions and I, cause I was interested in it. I wanted to learn more about just everything. That's kind of where I learned about, you know, Eastern philosophy and just started exploring it. Not like I was looking for a religion to join or anything like that. I don't think that I was ever really a joiner necessarily. I just kind of wanted to know about things. And yeah, that was where it all kind of began with you know, finding again, more those, those kind of, when I read something that's, um, of any sort of religious or spiritual context, if you've read it and it almost feels like you're reading some sort of like innate knowledge, like obviously this is, this has existed for so long, or it feels like you've read it before, or you knew it before, or like it, uh, it's just so obviously a part of how things work. Um, I've just always been called to finding those type of writings or listening to someone talk like that. It's almost like music too. Mm. If you listen to an amazing song, you're like, you ever get that thing where you're like, dude, I I swear I've heard this before, but yeah. I know I've never heard this. It's the it's same familiar, kind of thing it's with familiar, but new, like you're locking into something like a frequency that you're tuning into. And I would imagine as a songwriter, you've encountered that as well, where you're, you come up with a riff and you're in love with it and you're like, is this, am I lifting this from something? Like, what is this in another song? And it, like, it isn't, but it just feels like, Oh, this riff has always been here. Like, yeah, how am I just now time. playing it? It's always just been in the ether somewhere. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I, th- I honestly think that that's some sort of um, form of intuition that it's, it's you're, you're tapping into something that like the pool of, of greatness, you know, it's like, if you're, if you're playing something that, you you swear you had to have ripped off then it's probably pretty great right you know, and it's kind of the same yeah. it's kind of the same thing it's same thing reading any sort of reading anything that's those are the it's always the best when you're it could even be fiction actually it doesn't have to be religious or spiritual context stuff but uh yeah just whenever you're reading something and it's like this it feels like it's older than time you know it's just like it's already in you before you've you've read it just it's almost like an affirmation so you're, yes you're being like it's your show it's being shown like yeah you're you're reading the right stuff you're you're looking in the right direction you're on the right path kind of thing yeah affirmation is a great word for that because I, I feel like for me part of my interest in the the great mystery is tied into music and how much music has been part of my life and the way that i've connected with it because music you know for all of the sort of materialists humanist strictly scientific ideas about well you know let's believe in what we can see and feel and touch and 
and count and measure and for all of the strength and weight of that. I feel like their music is is one of the common shared experiences that we can point to and say, there's something unseen and intangible happening here also. You know, like I know, I know we can measure the frequencies and volume and everything that's coming out of your amp, right? But it's, I do feel like there is something uh, just been just outside the range of our perception that we're connecting to. And it's not always, it's not every moment of every piece of music that you're connecting in that way. But when you, when you're hitting it, to me, that's, you know, with, with only a handful of exceptions, that's, that's the closest to a religious experience, quote unquote, in the way that most religions would describe it that I think I've ever felt. And my life has been, you know, music, it's been moments with my kids and, you know, there's moments where you, where you feel that transcendence of like, man, something bigger is at work than my understanding of it. And that I suppose is a a big uh, component of what's kept me interested in always exploring and understanding, you know, the understanding that others might have that I haven't encountered yet. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I mean, what, what I think when you're saying that too, is just, it's almost like this, uh, the creation of it too is, is, Mm. is, dare I say godlike or, or alchemic or, you know, like it's almost like alchemy, like you, you, you hear a lot of people say, you know, you, they didn't, or Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan's a perfect example. He says he didn't write those songs, you know, they were already there, you know? And like, it's like when you're, when you're coming up with that kind of stuff, you're coming up where you're writing something that is, that's coming from another place. And I know that feeling too, where I didn't, I don't feel like I wrote that. I just feel like it was passed through me kind of thing. And if, if that's shared with people and they're hearing that energy and that frequency that was put into it, like the way that you react to that, there's no way that that the way that the listener reacts to that there's no way that that's not, you know, religious or, you know, it's, or, or what's, what's a better word. Um, I mean, you're, you're, it's like you're forcing catharsis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and, it's tough to call it supernatural because it's, it seems like it's a supernatural. It's something we would describe as supernatural. That is in fact, very much part of nature, which is kind of a, almost a paradoxical yeah, sort of yeah. thought, but yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned that thing of when people like Dylan talk about the art is sort of, they're, they're like a conduit, they're channeling the stuff that's there. Or I, th- I often think about, Michelangelo when he was sculpting David or this idea that he looks at we you and I look at a block of marble but he looked he saw David inside the block of marble and he's just he's just breaking away the pieces to get to him in there he's in there already you know and uh yeah I think that's that's pretty profound so as you were starting to study and, and discovering eastern philosophy and things like that where were you in your musical journey at that point because you know for a lot of folks there's high school and then there's maybe college and but obviously for a lot of our peers you know we were playing shows when we're 15 16 and and that whole thing is taking off even as we're trying to do these sort of uh 
more kind of civilian life <laughs> type things sure. simultaneously. Yeah. So what, what was the, I guess, the parallel tracks of your learning and study and, and your blossoming? Well, um, so at that same time, my, so my dad was also a guitar player, a musician and an amazing one. He studied jazz uh, and was just insane. And at that same time, while I was kind of exploring, yeah, the great mystery, like you said, um, music was really becoming, it became my main hobby and passion because uh, prior to, I guess it was more middle school, but by high school for sure, um, I had quit everything. I didn't ride bikes anymore. I didn't skateboard anymore. I didn't do any of that. I was too worried about hurting my hands because uh, I, I was I knew what I was doing. I'm like, I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to play shows. I'm going to be in a band. And uh, I was getting lessons from my dad and playing guitar with him. Monday nights were, uh, were guitar lesson days. And every once in a while we would just jam, hang out, not do lessons. Um, and that is really where some of the deep philosophical conversations really started being a normal thing in my life because my dad would love to just talk about that kind of stuff and at that point I was young and heated and I would we would more so argue rather than have conversations and I think at that point I was interested in religion but I identified more as like an atheist and even dabbled in satanism for a second you know I was just in high school just reading the satanic bible and listening to demon borger and shit so yeah. <laughs> Sure. Um, but, uh, I kind of went all over the map, you know, music was in influencing, uh, what I was interested in big time. Uh, you know, listen to Jimi Hendrix and, you know, Led Zeppelin, you want to smoke weed, you know, like that's, that, that started and smoking weed became a big thing in my life and then listening to black metal you want to go out in the woods when it's 40 degrees <laughs> so yeah you know definitely go to the cemetery put some corpse paint on um but yeah music it's i've never actually thought about it until right now that uh my spiritual path and music have really really been parallel they've they've run still to this day really you know like i i, I use spirituality and my inspiration for writing and trying to clear myself still and but yeah at that time um i was more in rebellion more in the rebellious mode like i don't want to believe in anything kind of kind of thing angsty um was there a deconstruction that was happening that, that's the thing you hear a lot of like ex ex-evangelicals as they identify where they they start deconstructing and taking apart you know the stuff they came up with was that was that sort of where you were when it's like i'm gonna read the satanic bible i'm gonna be in it you know what was it about kind of unplugging from the traditional sort of catholicism or was it was there something it was, else happening I think too, there or? was a i think there was a lot of you know uh wanting to wanting to show some sort of wisdom to like my family like i knew what i was doing you know there was a little bit of that like wanting to prove myself um and yeah i mean the satanism thing it was kind of i mean all of that i was reading 
anything that was uh like a big religious writing like siddhartha was like one of the big ones that uh i read when i was probably 15 and uh funny i actually read it again on our the first u.s tour we ever did it was the book i brought with me um it was there was a little bit and again i'm thinking about all this right now for the first time in a long time i think it was a lot of rebelliousness you know there was catholic household my mom and i kind of wanted to go to the opposite so i was reading a lot about buddhism and things like that so i think a lot of it was rooted in you know a young person's rebelliousness um and i was in this you know punk metal scene around here and everybody was so gg allen danzig and you know like they were there was there was this whole kind of thing and I didn't really want to be like everybody else. I wanted to have, you know, my own beliefs and, and be able to talk to somebody that's like, Oh, you, you don't believe in this. Like, well, why, what about, have you ever heard about this? You know, like always ask why kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I really, I mean, looking back at all that, I was really, a, I was kind of a wild kid. So look, looking back at all that, I was so far from who I am now. It took me until I was probably, 19 or so to really land on you know what i do believe in god or i believe in some sort of higher power and again just like liam said in that he said i think he said he took acid and you know kind of discovered something and for me it was mushrooms (laughs) and uh i still i still look back at it i was in suicide silence and i remember having this like almost like a come to jesus conversation with everybody at a band meeting and i said that i had a really, really awesome trip on mushrooms and everybody kind of scoffed a little bit. Like it's kind of weird, you know, like, you know, sure. You know, if that's, if that's, that's how it is, that's how it is. I kind of got laughed at a little bit, but then it led to curiosity from other band members and, and it really birthed a lot of what became, you know, some of our, our, our best music, I think, you know, like I, Mitch got into mushrooms too, and he took mushrooms one night on mayhem and or yeah, Mayhem 2008, and uh, he covered the bus in gaff tape and 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 wrote lyrics uh, all over the all over the bus, and that ended up being disengaged. It's like one of which is really about you know kind of a, a observation of death and like you know what happens when we die and how it's all going to end and um yeah, so I mean just the 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 discovery process from uh, not going to church anymore to figuring out how I really f- felt about everything. Uh, it's all, it all blends up with, you know, rebelliousness, angsty nature, deep conversations with my dad and psychedelics. <laughs> it's interesting because I'm a, a parent of a teenager at the moment. Uh, my daughter's uh, 15 as we're recording this and freshman in high school. And, and, you know, when I, I, and watching my kids grow, you know, my son will be 10 in a couple of months and running those parallels back to your own childhood where you're like, man, at this age, I was into this. And at this age, I knew about this, or I'd seen these movies or, you know, whatever the case may be. And it, it is an age hearing you describe it too, where, I don't think it's just angst and rebellion. I think also tied in there is we're really forming 
our identities because up to a certain point it's like our view of the world and everything is so shaped by our parents and whoever's or whoever is you know significant figure in our life and then that's kind of those teenage years is when we start going like okay what about what they've shown me am i gonna like keep and what and who am i like you were saying like you kind of want to show to your family like oh well that's your thing but here's my i have my own trip over here and then i think you and i are very similar in that we both got into subculture but we also saw things in subculture where we were like well i'm i'm also going to shape my identity by not being like you know i'm not yeah we're i'm we're all outside of the mainstream but i'm also different from you and and that's a, that's a whole interesting thing too right because it seems like a lot of people discover the different subcultures and scenes and go all in on all of the trappings for whatever reason for good or bad and it's sort of like i you know they're rejecting what they grew up with but they're like i found this thing and i'm all about this thing and then there's these outliers like you and i where i don't know i've, I've always felt up until very recent years i would always feel that like i'm too much of this but not enough of this for these people but i'm too much of this and not enough of this for these other people and always kind of this on a good day glass half full oh i can i can travel and have a lot of conversations and relationships with very diverse kinds of people and then on a bad day it's like man i don't fit in anywhere <laughs> nobody totally. nobody totally gets me because there's always these like couple of hang-ups in every scene i don't know i don't mean to speak for you but i i get that same sense from you it's it, it is exactly like that for me um yeah just because i especially because my dad was this jazz classic rock highly intelligent musician kind of guy and then the scene of music that i was i kind of needed to be a part of when i was young uh was more punk it was it was way more more of that and there was not a lot of pride and um musicianship and and intellectuality and uh and all of that so i i i spotted that pretty early on and a lot of these guys were a lot older than me too so say i was 14 or 15 some of them were as old as i think God, ed was probably 28 when i met him um so yeah, just seeing kind of the flaws and and some people that were my peers and older than me. And, and you know, these guys were touring and doing some some serious stuff, too. Uh, and I knew immediately that it was like, you know, whatever they're doing, I'm going to do it my own way. So I, it's a it's a good assessment on your end for sure. Like, a, you know, yeah. So something we have to talk about is, is part of your journey, the way that it all is intertwined and, and running parallel. Granted, it's within the scope of this underground subculture and this sort of ecosystem that it that it exists in. But I have a vivid memory of seeing Suicide Silence at the Revolver Golden Gods and the like brass from Revolver, which was very culturally relevant. No, no diss to Revolver as it exists now, but especially in that moment to our scene and mayhem and warp tour and all of that. And I remember the like editor in chief and like the, the guy who created the golden gods and all the, these people coming out and introducing suicide silence and being like, this is the next thing, you know, this is, this is lamb of God. This is maybe Metallica. You know, this is like these guys, this band and to be, uh, and especially now that you can look back on it and understand like how young the band was, 
you know, and uh, to have those expectations and that hype, for lack of a better word, and to be on magazine covers and to be the biggest band on Warp Tour and the thing everyone's talking about and, uh, you know, pioneering a new genre within a genre and, you know, all of that stuff, like uh, for you as a, as a person, what was that trip like and how did, how did you handle it? Where was your head at? How, how did you separate who Mark from suicide silence was to other people versus who you are in your own head? You know, what was that whole trip like for you at that time? It's funny that you say that, like, you know, splitting who I am in suicide silence and who I am. That's actually how I handled it. Mm. Um, was I really, I split myself into this. I, I learned to, have the persona on stage and a persona in front of a microphone or a camera, you know, interview kind of stuff. And then I would have my persona at home and who I, who I would be when I'm away from all of that. And I knew that I was doing that and I kind of did it consciously. Um, because again, I was pretty aware that, you know, you can't, you, you, you can't be this rock star person 24 seven and have this, you know, I think nowadays if you're YouTubing, they say like 10 X yourself, you know, like be yourself, but like 10 times who your, your, your right. personality really is. Uh, and I think I was kind of doing that mm. for all of that was happening. I was just, who am I? Then just go full on, you know, as, as far as I can take it. Like a wrestler. Um, you know, like Yeah. The- like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Think of, think of your gimmicks and you know, and occasionally be a heel, you know, say stuff that, you know, you don't want exactly. So, um, it was, that was an intense time. Um, one, it was this huge confirmation that I had made the right calls following these signs throughout my life. And I will say that because I, that's how I live my life. I, if the signs aren't there, I'm not on the right path. And, um, I dropped out of high school. I quit the band that I was in that, you know, we were actually doing really good at that time, had label interests and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but I quit that band just cause I didn't like dealing with the people in the band and I had no idea what I was going to do. And then the next thing was suicide silence was having tryouts and that was only 2005. So you saw us, we're talking three years later from me trying out in 2005, uh, to, golden gods 2008 it's only about three years or so and we're already best new talent or you know to revolver which is yeah it was massive and it does kind of boost your ego in the traditional sense you know of ego that you know i'm doing the right thing i'm making the right decision affirmation to pick up affirmations yeah yeah so yeah it did it affirmed that I was making the right moves and that pretty much everything that was going on where I was gathering my influence from and how I was, you know, portraying myself was, uh, was working out in a positive way. Um, but I mean, it was really just kind of the beginning. I was 20, (laughs) you know, I wasn't, I was maybe 21. Um, and I think even back then I knew that it was just, this is a, this is a, this is a journey. This is not, I haven't made it. This isn't over, you know? Um, and 
yeah and it was it was a test in itself you know don't lose yourself in this and mm. don't you know don't uh don't think that you can rest you know you got to keep putting everything you can into this um but yeah this is this 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 topic is what a lot of my friends want to talk to me about that are in bands and maybe only been doing it for five years or you mm. know, not that much they're like what you know what was it like being so young and having all that happen at once? And I think really, if I wasn't from, you know, the background that I was from with my mom and my dad and the way that I was kind of, I had a, a lot of these, you know, disciplines and spiritual practices kind of instilled in me already. I wouldn't have been so aware and able to stay grounded, which was that mm. was my, my, that was my home self, that other persona of myself that, kept me there so the real it's almost like my home self kind of is more exactly who i am and the person in interviews is this amalgamation of all the cool you know rockers and even actors and movie characters that i liked you know to turn turn it into this and uh but the home who i am is more is is really rooted in wanting to be grounded and and stay aware and present and have real discipline so um, I can't say that I completely succeeded in, in being a hundred percent disciplined, balanced dude back then. I definitely went off the rails and partied and partied with the best of them. But, uh, I've always been trying to do my best with that and stay, stay grounded. That's so great that you have that in particular, because oftentimes something I've encountered, something I encountered in my own life and then saw with friends and then, you know, getting into managing bands would encounter continuously is whenever someone quits a band or is fired or the band breaks up so many times that person is confronted by the reality that their entire identity was wholly 100% in being that person from that band and they wake up that very first day afterwards and they're like holy crap you know, like, who am I? Mm. What do I, what do I do? Where do I go? And and oftentimes that's really freeing. Sometimes it's a, a punk rock thing where they're, you know, maybe they quit the band because they wanted or broke the band up because they wanted to smash that uh, anchor or albatross in their life or or whatever it is. And and oftentimes you'll see people kind of go through this evolution where my advice to bands a lot in those crisis moments these days for a lot of years now, honestly. I can remember having this conversation with the guys in Zayo in like 2007 when they told me that they didn't want to tour anymore. I was like, don't break up. And at that point, they had already broken up a couple times years before. But I was like, don't break up. Just put it away. You know, it's on a shelf. You're on a hiatus or you're writing music or whatever you want to call it. But just like set it aside. It'll it'll be there. If you never want to go back to it, nothing changed because today you're ready to abandon it completely uh but something does change you know you'll it, it'll still be there and you'll and you'll and you won't have to go through the rigmarole of you know the reunion show after the final show or whatever oh. and because there is oftentimes people sort of are able to kind of bounce back and find a, a balance where it's like okay i'm not i can't be all or nothing i'm this person in this band but i can find some balance where I can reintegrate 
being the person in the band and still have the family, the mortgage, the business, the whatever it was that, you know, developed in that next chapter of the person's life. But it sounds like you were able to have that grounding in a sense of self that was a little independent of all the stuff happening with the band. And that, that's so crucial. You know, that's one of those things where it's like, Oh, if you had it, if, you, if I knew then what I know now, you know, totally. Cause I vividly remember being a person that wrapped my identity and being in a band. And when my band broke up, it was like, you know, yeah, that's who I am. You know, who, totally. Every relationship in my life is based on being that person. You know, what happened, what happens to all these friends and stuff that I know and, they don't see me that way. I don't see myself that way. It's a trip, man. It can be a, it, a real trip. It it totally is. And that's, I didn't do it on purpose, but yeah, looking back at all of that, it was a good place to be coming from because I think even now, you know, I can say I'll never quit suicide silence, not because I need it, but because I want to be a part of it and that there's no reason for me to stop. And I can wholeheartedly say that if it did end, I would still wake up tomorrow and be the same person I am now. Right. So that's heavy. Cause that, that's, yeah. It, it's some people listening. This may not understand what we're talking about. And it might be like, what are they talking about? Like that's so yeah. easy, but it's not anywhere near as easy as it sounds. Yeah. Especially, I mean, yeah, I was 17 when I, when I joined suicide silence and I'd been playing in bands since I was 14 and the, I would say that I would lose a big part of me if I wasn't to play music anymore. But, uh, I think that suicide silence, um, it's, it, I've, I've, uh, I've encountered it in multiple different states of mind, the end of suicide silence. And yeah. is it, is it gonna, um, is it gonna crush me? I mean, when Mitch passed, of course the, you know, is this the, is this the end was, fully there so i dealt with it hard with that um and that again affirmed that it was a big affirmation of uh you know who am i how am i gonna react to all this and um you know mark from suicide silence isn't gonna have a good reaction to your singer dying you have to have you know your your true self your whole self's got to come in and deal with this because that, yeah. that guy <laughs> party yeah. animal's not going to handle this very well exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. So. yeah yeah and was that i mean first of all you know i mean there are certain things death is inevitable and everyone's going to experience death of a loved one their own death you know that's something that we all eventually accept about life in some way or another but certainly, you know, whether it's a, a parent when you're young or, or God forbid, a, a parent, you know, all, there's there's so many things that can happen that are a little more rare and that are particularly awful. And I think one of them is losing a peer when you're young and someone who was, you know, a friend, a brother, and, and you're so interconnected with in tangible ways and intangible ways alike. And you don't really have the tools that you might have, you know, when that starts happening, when you're like 60 and 70 and it's like, oh, friends are people have known my whole life are passing away. It's it's wildly different, obviously, than when you're in your 20s or when, you're, you know, people you've been 
around since you were a teen. So, you know, having said all of that, had you had experiences with with death prior to Mitch passing with family members or, you know, was that was that the first big one? No, um, the first big one. Well, um, my grandfather, my dad's dad was a polio survivor, one of the old, longest surviving polio survivors. Um, and his, his his physical therapist in the eighties was Deepak Chopra when he was a doctor. Pretty crazy. Wow. Um, <laughs> Bro, can we call that pre pre Pak Chopra? Yeah, pre Pak. <laughs> the pre the prequel era. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's a crazy little anecdote. Um, so yeah, I, I was kind of at a young age. He died in ninety six, I think, or maybe ninety five. I knew that uh, my grandfather was going to pass at some point. He was in a you know a wheelchair and. Um, super cool dude really really intelligent guy um but yeah he he was the first person first family member that passed but another big one was in high school one of my really good friends killed himself uh he was 16 stephen corby and uh is really really close to me and it was the story is really shitty and the, sh- the short end of it is uh we would usually we, we could ditch school at a certain point and he had already not shown up to school and I had my first prepaid cell phone and he texted me and said, Hey, ditch at break and meet me at the sports park. And I got caught ditching. And then I text him, Oh shit, I got caught. I'm not going to make it. And then he never texted me back. And I found out that, you know, he hung himself in his garage that day. I don't, I, I've, I've since dealt and, you know, not blamed myself or anything for it. But at the time it was like, of course dude, you have like, that. Like if only, yeah. Yeah, it was like this. And that's a natural thing. reaction, I think, for any of us when it's obviously someone with like a psych degree could could uh, explain this better than I could, I'm sure. But my sense of that has been much like a lot of conspiracy theories, not to say that there aren't plenty that are true. Mm-hmm. But I think it's those moments and that those feelings of guilt and responsibility is a way to process a situation where we feel powerless. Mm. you know or something that that just, just seems so incomprehensible it's like a screwed up way of of making sense of it where it's like oh well if i would have gone left instead of right i could have stopped that from happening and it's like no you couldn't have you yeah. know but if we're having so much trouble dealing with the like this horrible thing happened and i there was i couldn't i didn't stop it i couldn't stop it it's almost like telling ourselves that we could have is a weird form of comfort even though we're also like torturing ourselves with that idea no, that, that totally yeah. makes sense. I, I, it's, it's a rational, logical way of latching on to any sort of story or narrative in your head that yeah. is going to help you cope with it. And that's, yeah. that's what we do. We create stories in our head. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, death, death. Yeah. Just dealing with death was, uh, was not something I was unfamiliar with once, uh, Mitch had passed and, um, but I mean, obviously, I knew that Mitch was uh, like this future legend, you know, like I knew being friends with him and I, I knew I knew who he was before I actually was friends with him. You know, like I knew he was the singer of Suicide Silence and I'd seen them play and I was like, that guy's got Phil Anselmo energy. Like, I've never seen that before, you know. Um, he had so, crazy yeah, like, energy, charisma, stage presence, and there was something uh, even just from a 
marketing for lack of a less gross word kind of sure. perspective where, you know, he was a good looking girls at warp tour, love him kind of guy. And so you could have these like four Hessian cred metal dudes that like decibel would love. Mm-hmm. And then you could put this great looking warp tour singer in the front of it. And it's like, no wonder this was the band. Yeah. No wonder this was like the heaviest, most extreme band to be this popular. You yeah, know? absolutely. Absolutely. And I magical. I, yeah, it was absolutely magical. And I fully saw that all happening too. Cause yeah, like, you know, I was totally more metal Hesher dude, like going seeing Suffo and cattle in San Diego yeah. and like, you know, all this, I was, uh, I was into all that stuff and suicide silence was the first time where like, you see this guy on stage, you're like, that doesn't look like the normal dude, you know, that would be doing this. And there's chicks here like what, <laughs> yeah. what's going on so, we were like there's a they heard that pig squeal right like yeah. They, yeah. they realize how low this tuning is yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's it definitely unique and um it's no it really is no wonder you know there it's it was it was a, a perfect storm and i was meeting people at that point in time that you know oh i listened to your your record and you know I saw what you guys looked like and I thought everyone was going to look like you, like me, like bearded and long hair. Like yeah, I thought you yeah, guys yeah. were like a stoner looking, you know, death metal band. And everyone was always surprised, which made it polarizing, which also was important. You had people that either hated it or loved it. And there was that line in the yeah. sand and you either were fully for it and fighting for it or fully against it and telling people they sucked for listening to it. So, and how many, and how many great things, especially bands, can we describe that way? <laughs> that we're like I mean, five finger death punch. Hated. Yeah. Five finger death punch, you know, like one of the biggest bands in the world. It's like it's one of the most hated bands in the world, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It's gotta be that way. Yeah. Oh, that is, that is fascinating. And, you know, even, even setting the spiritual and philosophical components aside, replacing a front man in a rock band is one of the most daunting, formidable the fact that we can name the success stories in doing that says a lot about how difficult it is mm-hmm. that there are so few, you know, we can all go, yeah, ECDC, Van Halen, Iron Maiden. Like we can literally sit here and list them because there aren't that many, you mm-hmm. know, and there are a lot of, of stories of uh, it just wasn't, you know, you just couldn't pull it off. I just did an interview with, Dino from Fear Factory and Milo, the new frontman that he selected. And obviously yeah. this was a, a big, me as like a rock nerd historian kind of person, like this was a big part of our conversation. And uh, in their case, I, I likened it a lot more to Journey with mm. where it's like, okay, the guy, the guy is the guy is just not going to do it. So now you found this young person in another country <laughs> who, yeah. who wants to do it and can and the songs are going to be played the way they should be and people are going to get to hear them dino's a lot younger than journey so there's you know hypothetically a lot more gas in the tank and creatively in terms of there could be more and more fear factory albums but but it just got my head you know going about all of this all over again where it's just like man it is such a hard thing to do totally for whatever reason it's and a lot of it's perceived value, but it's so much harder than a drummer, a bass player, a guitar player, a keyboard player. Not to say that those people are all replaceable, 
certainly not. You know, you're not going to replace Eddie Van Halen. You know, we're watching Pantera that's out right now, and I don't think there's anyone better than Zach, but Zach's not dying, and, you know, on and on and on, right? So without belaboring it, because obviously it's a conversation you've, you've had to death, but in terms of how it fits into the theme of this podcast, uh, where was your head and ter- where was your spirit in terms of, you know, honoring the legacy and, and uh, grieving your friend, having four other people whose lives are permanently altered and, and certainly shouldn't be expected to retire, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like where was, where were you at once kind of the fog of the immediate shock and the terribleness of what had happened? when you started thinking about like, does the band continue and that sort of thing? Like where, where were you at personally with that? Well, um, the, yeah, the passing of Mitch immediately put me into a place of, um, almost rebuilding and, and being in touch with that or the grounded person, my, my home person being as close to that person as I could to really process and grieve and, um, you know, once I, that's when I quit drinking and that's when I was really starting to focus on my health. I lost so, so much weight and in a healthy way too, not in any sort of, you know, crash dieting weirdness. Um, I really, I just changed everything that I needed to, you know, and once we decided that the band was going to keep going, um, I think this is where I, this is the polarizing statement. I differ from a lot of people in bands because I don't really take being in a band or being a musician, like super serious. So to say it is always been something that's fun. And it's always been something that if I'm having fun with it, then I can then project out that fun. And obviously when you're singer who is like the rock star dies, there's nothing fun about this. You have to introduce somebody new. The band has to be together on all of it, like closer than maybe we've ever been before. And we all have to uh, have an intention and have a reason why we're doing this. And even though it sounds like that's kind of a serious thing for me, it's it was still, it was about maintaining this energy and sound that we knew we were capable of and when it came to who's going to be in the band or how we were going to move forward with it it was without a doubt we just knew we needed to have somebody that was going to come in and be like one of us already we didn't need we didn't want to bring in someone from another country we didn't want to have a bunch of tryouts we didn't want to cloud our judgment by making this more complicated and bringing some big industry attention to it. And um, I think at that time, it was really me trying to serve this greater, you know, uh, something greater than myself, which is this big world that is suicide silence, this, this ethereal thing. And if the energy that we put into it and the, everything that we can, uh, if we can serve that the proper way, then this will work. Then this will be something that will, that will, that should 
you know, work out. And, um, I wouldn't say that we necessarily were a success story in it either. I think that, um, you know, obviously we've done things that our fans didn't really like, and, uh, we've had our ups and downs with it. But again, I think that it's always been about serving. It, there's, it's so hard to put into words, this like tangible energy ball that is everything that suicide silence everything we put into it it creates this whole you can't see it and it, mm -hmm. you can't touch it but it's there and it was a it was completely apparent that once we you know knew we were going to move forward with it that we all still have that energy and mitch didn't really leave mm. either like his energy is right here it's it's so um you hear this about Cliff Burton a lot. You hear that from I've heard, you know Hetfield and and Kirk Hetfield mainly. You you'll see him talk about that in interviews, like they, and they talk about him like he's still in the band. Totally. I mean, we we talk about it every once in a while. It comes up, you know, and it's it's he's still he's still with us and making decisions and how we're going to write music and how we're going to do everything, how we were going to you know have. Eddie be the new person or the new singer, everything was pretty much um, to serve this greater good, this this thing that is so positive in all of our lives. And um, really, I think that where I where my head was at, I was probably the most clear that I'd ever been in my entire life, and it's almost something that a uh, I have to still to this day, I don't, I don't really believe that you can uh, become, you can get back to a mindset that you were in, you know, I think you have to be moving forward towards, you know, your, your consciousness expanded. And now you, you can't go back to where you were. You have to move to this next kind of level. And I am pretty sure that when Mitch passed and Eddie joined and we started writing music and touring again, I really, really learned that, that this is now a whole new uh, progression and the journey kind of is rebooting. And um, yeah, I, 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 I look back at this is when, you know, Liam introduced me to ayahuasca and when I started to, I started to really take my, uh, my personal life, my spiritual beliefs and everything like that far more serious than I ever had before. Um, and I've, I've had like, I think Dino, you just mentioned Dino. Dino is one of the people that has said that to me too. Like I noticed, uh, you know, you, you're one of the first people that puts your life before your career, mm -hmm. which is, it, it's also another, not very many people will admit to that, you know, like mm -hmm. I have to keep my, my, myself clean, you know, like that you can really you know, get muddied up when you are so driven by your career and being the biggest band or having all that kind of stuff that can really mess with you. And, um, definitely that's where my head was at when I was, when I was, you know, getting back on the, the horse, so to say with suicide silence was I I've, I've got to keep my, my heart and soul intact through all this 
not to embarrass you in this regard, but I, and, and this is, you know, uh, obviously I've known Eddie for a long time. Um, you know, I don't know everyone in the band super well. I know all of you to different degrees, I suppose, but my outside looking in perspective, my guess would be that you were also, uh, I, uh, a source, a foundation. Uh, I can imagine the other guys in the band looked to you in that time, whether consciously or unconsciously, as as a way to be grounded. Also, right? That you're oh, yeah. probably the person. And I don't mean like you know business decisions and that sort of part of a band. All that stuff with the band. I just mean like just the vibe, just your energy, the the intangible and perceptible thing. I would imagine there was a lot of like, you know. Yeah, people uh, seeking your just the general sort of counsel and comfort of being around you. You know, I would I would say you're you're right about that, and that um, we, me and Garza, we he he was one of the main people that kind of got on the same trip as me. You know, focusing on ourselves and our health and all that, and yeah, I mean, him and I, he would you know, what are you reading and what are you, what are you, what are you interested in right now? And we were kind of on this whole other trip together. Um, and yeah, helping everybody out. I mean, we were definitely a unit. We there was, it was much more of a, a family and like a friendly environment at that time, having to kind of coddle everybody. We were all grieving still and, uh, not in a bad way coddle, but like everyone had to be there for each other. So I, yeah, at that time, there was so many deep conversations and so many, you know, needing to talk about certain things and allowing everybody to be able to talk about it. We did therapy uh, together. Good. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did that before we started touring again. Um, uh, but that helped us, you know, open up to each other a lot. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, dude, we've, we, we've, we went through a, we've, we've all cried in front of each other and, you know, and, and not in a therapy session, just, you know, needing to, and we're, we learn to, to open up and allow for everybody to be exactly who they are and learn from and through each other. Um, and yeah, still, still to this day, you know, we still have the, those, those nights or those moments where it's like, you know, somebody's got to blow off some steam, like, let's be there for them kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's wild. I mean, the, the the suicide silence camp is there's it's we have the the the, the most roller coaster of a story, and it it's yeah. continuously getting written, and and all of that has to be uh, kind of surface level to a to a to a degree with each other. You can't really put that anywhere else. I I've had to. I think I've said this to you probably uh, that you know I've had to look at you know, losing Mitch and being the band that we are, I've had to look at all of that tragedy and I, I don't just say it, but it's totally been a blessing. It has 100%, you know, formed me. Well, everything you just explained that was so transformative for you and Garza for everybody was a gift that Mitch gave you. 100%. You know? Yeah. Without a doubt. It was totally, totally a gift. And yeah, I've, yeah, I've said it before, you know, I think any of us could have had a, 
you know, an accident and it could have been any of us. And that was one, that's the, that was the first lesson where it was like, Whoa, okay, that actually happened. And it, that could have been me or Alex or Garza or, you know, I think that was that cliff lesson for those guys too, you know, <laughs> literally could have, you know, literally yeah. cliff and Kirk swapping bunks that night, you know, mm -hmm. it's like going back to your, your friend in high school, like where, how many times has Kirk Hammond asked himself, like, I should, that should have been me. I should have been in that book, you know, like, again, trying to exercise some control over this, these tragedies. And, and But then also what, what they can give us. Yeah. And I love that idea that the intangibility, and I want to jump back to something before we move off of it. You know, you mentioned that you don't think it's necessarily been a, a big success. And I know what you mean in terms of like counting and measuring certain things, but that also, you know, success is what we define for ourselves in different ways, you know, and I think that you can't stop me record is unstoppable. I don't mean to, <laughs> didn't mean to make a pun, uh, but it's, you know, an, an uh, undeniably fantastic record. And Eddie certainly proved that he could do the job. And, uh, you know, the fact that the band is able to continue at all, you know, is, is a, a victory and a success. True. And I want to talk about the self-titled record, not in so much as the reception of it. I, I wanted the, not so much the reception of the self-title, but I want to talk about the creation of it. And mm -hmm. full disclosure for folks listening to the podcast, I was the manager for Ross Robinson during the time that Suicide was making that record with him. And I was man you know, his manager for a, a number of years uh, right around that period. So I, I know I do know him personally and I've spent a lot of time around him. And a lot of the kind of legends and folklore about his his process and his, his methodology and, you know, throwing oranges at Dave McLean's head when Machine Head's tracking drums and, you know, all the stories about corn and all, all the stuff that we hear. I mean, that, that stuff predates me. I didn't know Ross then when he made, you know, At the Drive-In and Slipknot and all of those really huge records. But in my times around him, he's, he's definitely a very... Uh, He's definitely a very spiritual guy, a very, very interesting cat. And uh, one of the things I learned about him and getting to know him that I had never read anywhere was that his mom is Byron Katie, who is a uh, very well known in certain circles. I don't know the work that she does, if we describe it as self-help or. Yeah, she's. A, yeah, I don't want to say new age because new age makes me think of like crystals and incense. And I don't know. It's not that. But um that that to me was definitely like a key to unlock an understanding of Ross was once I knew that I was like, Oh, you're like the Beavis and butthead version of her trip. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're like the that's great motocross riding, blow stuff up in the desert, but also understand all these, you know, enormous truths about existence. And that's what makes him such a fascinating person. So having said all of that, I will also like to point out for people listening who might have their own opinions about things, you know, oftentimes Ross will make a record with an established band and people will go, Oh, they went to Ross Robinson and he did this. And now they, you know, it sounds like a Ross Robinson record. I think a big misunderstanding and you are in every bit of a position to correct me if this is not the right thing. I think bands go to Ross because they want to make a Ross Robinson record. It's not like they trip and fall into his studio and he takes them and turns them into this Ross Robinson e-band. 
Yeah. I think bands are at whatever place they're at creatively and personally and whatever, that they want that experience and they want a record that sounds like that. And they want those performances, whatever. And that's why they go there. Mm-hmm. So it's almost sort of like he gets kind of unfairly like, you know, Oh, machine head. They made that Ross Robinson record. It's like, well, could they, cause that's what they wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so having, I realized there was a whole lot to unpack on what I just said, but really what it comes down to was, the decision-making and, and what made you want to go have that experience. And I think if you're this deep into this podcast, I think it's almost self-explanatory. And, uh, and then the process itself, like, you know, let's, let's talk about it. Well, well, I think everything that you just said was totally needed as context for all of that. And um, I didn't know that about Ross either uh, until we were working on that record, but, so full story of all of that is that we wanted Ross to record the cleansing. We wanted him mm. to be the producer on the first record. And Ross was kind of the goal of suicide silence from the beginning. We wanted to do a Ross Robinson record and he wasn't at, in 2006 and seven way out of our budget. We we're a new band and it wasn't really in the cards. Um, Plus, I mean, now looking back, there's no way the label would have wanted us to record our first record with Ross Robinson <laughs> because of everything you just said. Um, but again, it, it lines up with the the parallels of, you know, the signs and how there's this, everything kind of always happens for a reason in, in my life. And I knew that we all knew we wanted to record with Ross. And then a, a side story of this is that when we were, it was either when we were writing no time to bleed our second record or after we all kind of said we didn't we were seeing this success and we didn't know how long the band was going to last we said if we make it to our we're following the metallica uh, you know uh kill them all ride the lightning you know uh and uh, justice and if we if we make it to uh, oh, i skipped master of puppets but if we make it to our fifth album we're gonna do a black album we're gonna throw the yes. rule book out yeah and this is something i just recently started saying i, I didn't really say during the press of the self-titled album because it just didn't seem pertinent but um that we knew when we got to that fifth record we wanted to do something different let's probably do clean vocals or just whatever it may be and it just so happened that that is when ross was available hmm. so we 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 knew we were like holy shit we finally get to do a ross robinson record and we are so in the place to throw that rule book out it was like we had already drank the kool-aid prior to even meeting ross you know me and garza had both drank ayahuasca together and been like you know far off the deep end and really exploring a lot of that stuff and ross when we met him he just he loved it he could see where we were at and he was just like i mean you know him so he was so in love with that we were like these like ie jedis he was like you would call us you know like (laughs) (laughs) that's such a thing that's such a thing he would come up with yeah (laughs) and uh and yeah the signs were all there i mean another one was so we had already we knew we were going to be uh, recording with Ross and I listened to Rick Rubin on the Tim Ferriss podcast and uh, Tim Ferriss asked Rick Rubin what are uh, what books do you recommend uh, or what are what's what's mandatory reading for anybody is, is what he said and uh, he said uh, wherever you are there you are which is a meditation book by John Kabat-Zinn which is an amazing book 
and uh, the Tao Te Ching. And I had heard of the Tao, but I'd never actually really read the Tao Te Ching. I knew what it was about. I, just, I knew the, the philosophy of it. Um, so I went and I bought that book and I bought the Tao Te Ching. And I actually have one of them right here. So when we got to recording with Ross, I was way into this. I was way into the Tao. And um, I had this, this small like pocket one by Stephen Mitchell. And I had this in my pocket with me at like at all times, almost at this time. And he was like, oh, that's my stepdad's uh, uh, translation. Stephen Mitchell is Byron Katie's husband. And you're thinking <laughs> me something right now. I didn't know that until right now. Yeah. So, so this, wow. this, this, this like insane, just wow. I, that, just, that gave me goosebumps. <laughs> yes. It was, it was really, really crazy. And then he was able, because that happened, he was like, oh, well, I got to FaceTime him with you and, and like, you got to meet him. So I got to meet Stephen Mitchell, who he's a, he's a writer. He's a, he's a translator. He is the co-author of all of Byron Katie's books. Um, and it was just insane. Like it blew my entire mind open. And that's, that's, if that doesn't pretty much explain where suicide silence was during that process, I don't know what else does. <laughs> and, and, just... and again, bring, you know, with the themes that keep coming up in this conversation, talk about another affirmation of like, Oh, Mark is right where Mark needs to be. 1000%. That book falls out of your pocket. So to speak. Oh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like I had, I had traveled with this book in my pocket. Like it had been in while, you know, hiking in Spain and like, it was just with me all the time. It was like, it meant a lot to me. Um, Cause it was exactly like I said before, this is what I know. This is, I already know everything this to be true, whether or not this is some real religious context or concepts that it's, it doesn't matter if this is real or not, what it says inside of it. I know this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, dude, it was, it was the most mind blowing thing. And yeah. So where we were at, whatever, whatever Ross, you know, was thrown at us, we were into it and whatever we were throwing at him, he was into it. And it was, uh, almost like we all had a clear intention and it was like, we knew it was going to be catastrophic and we wanted it to be catastrophic mm-hmm. and we loved it. And mm-hmm. if, and you know, Ross, it's like, if it makes you feel something, then you win. Like you're, that doesn't matter if it's commercially successful. It's if, if you've, if you've triggered a reaction, whether it's joy or absolute disdain it doesn't matter what it is that's that's art that's you know that's what it really is so that process was it was amazing it was i I loved making that record it was so much fun and perfect for where we were at and yeah we lived with them you know we lived with if if, you just got to know ross to if imagine living with with ross robinson you know you just see this so he's so He's like crazy in the best way. <laughs> ben from Dillinger and I stayed at his place together for about two weeks. Well, I'll set this scene for you. Uh, ben was going through a divorce. I mean, was was waist deep in the divorce. And uh, I just split with my ex who I was with for 10 years and have two kids with. Brand new fresh 
and uh, then was was trying to make a record with a not with Dillinger with a, a a project which did eventually get made, but through many other band members and producers. <laughs> this was like the earliest attempt. Was that Giraffe Tongue Orchestra? It was Giraffe Tongue Orchestra. That's what I thought, yeah. And it was um, I had worked it out for him to come work with Ross. I was managing both of them at the time, and it was John Theodore on drums uh, from you know Queens of the Stone Age and. Eric Avery from Jane's Addiction on bass, Ben on guitar, Brent from Macedon was part of the band, but didn't make it out for those sessions. And uh, yeah, by the time those sessions were done, both Eric and, and John Theodore were out. <laughs> so was, so to just to set the context of what a crazy couple of weeks that was, you know, uh, and Ross was out too. He ended up, Ben ended up making the record with Steve Edits, I think, in a whole different lineup and, and way down. And not, by the way, none, I'm not assigning blame on anyone involved. Everyone I just named is a sweetheart of a person and a savant of a talent. And there weren't arguments. It wasn't anything gnarly. It was just that it's moment. Difficult. Was just it's difficult. That, that, those busy musicians involved in something. I was I was yeah. watching that from a, from afar, being like, "Oh, I can't wait to see what this is all about." Yeah, knowing it would be the, difficult. The names that were involved. Yeah, yeah, and we. Uh, Man, I had a <laughs> I had a friend of mine uh, who was a rapper who came over one night to go get dinner with us, and they were talking about how they didn't have a singer, and I was like, I've got a rapper who's literally on the other side of the door waiting for us on the sidewalk. Like, do you want him to come in and just start rapping over this stuff? He's super talented, and that almost happened. And it was what, and, and that, and it's only in that kind of a situation where that could even almost happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, totally. uh, but yeah, but just just to as a roundabout way of saying like, yeah, I've, I've more or less lived with Ross for a couple of weeks and in this insane time, in this insane situation, bunking in a room with Ben. Yeah. <laughs> and the, both of us, both of our lives in this huge states of transition and craziness. And then you know, Ross making a have... smoothie in the morning. <laughs> totally. Totally. Just... He, probably a great person though, to have around her. The best that, yeah, the best I mean, to have in that could, moment. Couldn't really yeah. get any better than that. He's yeah, he's 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 the most. You know, if you say that me and Liam are comforting energies, it's like Ross is like the comforting energy. He's just so yeah. welcoming and awesome. Yeah, he's the only person who ever said to me, and it's where you're like, what's happening to me right now? Where <laughs> Jedi mind tricks? Where uh, I was, you know, as a manager, something had happened that I was I was uh, apologizing to him for. And he was like, never apologize to me because it makes you the victim. Oh, yeah. I've heard that. Like, <laughs> you know, it was like one I of those know. things. He just said it so offhand and it was like, it, it was rattling in my head for like months, you know, where I'm yep. like, I'm like the, I'm like the gif of like the, you know, person doing the yeah, complicated totally. math equation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, he's just full of that, that those he, little chestnuts. Where he told, like, he told your world. He, he said that to us. Um, what was one that he he said that um satisfying your fans is the true sellout <laughs> he's not <laughs> wrong god <laughs> and and that's a real tough one to to swallow when you're like yeah. trying to write music that's going to stoke your fan base out and you're going wait a second i'm not really am i really not being true to myself by trying yeah. to appease the the fan base you know it's a, it's a, it, that's a that's a crazy one. That's. I mean, we all liked The Force Awakens, but look what <laughs> happened. You know what I mean? It's like, and that was the ultimate. Like, well, we're gonna, 
feels like Star Wars, right? 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 Yeah. Feels the same, right? Doesn't this feel the same? Totally. Facing the fans, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know. It's like Death Magnetic versus Hardwired. I love both of those records. I like Hardwired a lot more. Mm-hmm. And it's like Death Magnetic has that feeling of like, eh, yeah, this is what you guys want to sound like, right? Remember this? Like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. But then the Hardwired was more of a comfort, like, okay, we sound like that still, but we're, you know, we took a breath. I don't know. It's man, yeah, that is kind of the ultimate sellout in certain ways. It's like you're putting on a costume, even. People don't want to hear it. But <laughs> yeah, a, that's uh, that's that's tough. That's super tough. Tough love. I I got. I remember the first notes of the self-titled that I heard. You could you could hear. It's like, oh man, this this must be what it sounds like to be in the in the practice room with these guys, mm. you know, which is just such a different idea and energy for your genre. You know, because when you think about Suffo and Morbid and Cannibal and all, you know, you think about these huge, oppressive, giant recordings, you know, mm. and even the early stuff that was like low, more lo-fi, it was still like, you know, yeah. and to hear what sounded like people a little unhinged, you know, just going off and, and grooving. Oh, yeah. Playing death metal. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Totally different totally different i mean i definitely will you know if there's one thing that i will you know toot my own horn or our own horn about that is just that i don't think hardly anybody has the balls to do that <laughs> we're it was it was like such a dumb commercial move for us to 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 risk you know we were we were basically just showing our vulnerability we were showing being completely vulnerable and that when it comes to sharing something you're creating usually you want to create something and bring something that is far more refined and uh you you are creating it within tension that it is going to be listened to and judged as opposed to I'm going to create this with the intention of not giving a fuck what anyone thinks about it normally you're making it that YouTube way you're trying to take yourself times 10 yeah 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 and and the the amount of rules that we have had in the suicide silence writing space you know like things taboo things when we got to that record and we just said no rules and everything was allowed, it created a really wild writing environment because everything was allowed. You know, there was not like, nah, that's not going to work. It's like, oh, you really like that. So we're going to use that. Like you really feel that. So I want to feel that too. And God, we were doing crazy shit at those writing sessions. We would show up and we would meditate together for however long we would sit in silence we would turn all the gear off and have like no electronics on and sit in silence for a while and just like allow everything to mellow out sometimes it would be 20 minutes we would sit without talking or anything we were we were really getting in there and that was before ross was even involved and then once ross started coming and seeing we were doing that he was just so for it yeah (laughs) yeah 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 he probably wouldn't have been interested in working with the band at any other stage in the same way you know we wouldn't have been uh ready to work with him you know we were so we were we were way more 
it was almost like we only knew what we wanted you know nobody else even really knew it and even to work with you know any producer it was like you kind of had to let them in and still not trust them totally like you know <laughs> you know you don't really get it you're no, everyone was always older everyone was always like yeah. 20 years older than us so it's like how do you know what is so sick you know <laughs> yeah, we're, we're yeah, young yeah. And we, we got the thumb to the pulse but then yeah with that record it was like everything it was everything happened exactly at the right time and uh I, I still i wouldn't change anything about it we i've we've talked about this before is that we kept saying don't worry no one's going to hear this we're going to go throw the, the hard drive off the pier at the end of this you know like no one's going to hear it we were pretending we were just recording things for fun God, and so, what a great attitude to have towards it what a great and that was the only way it was ever going to be that raw was to have that attitude and and i don't know how much you talked about this on the press cycle at the time but for people listening to understand you had forces fighting against it <laughs> there oh, were yeah. there were and into their credit understandable where they're coming from with their absolutely point of view. but there were people behind the scenes who were like "Ooh, this is no we're not yes <laughs> you know oh, and yeah. uh but ultimately as i as i remember it you pled your case to marcus steiger the guy who founded nuclear blast and mm -hmm. still owned it at the time and now runs atomic fire which i think is the most hilariously named reboot ever it's so marcus though it's so amazing nuclear blast atomic <laughs> fire i love it i love it uh they, they just announced that blue grape music from the roadrunner founder and i'm like man they really should have called it like you know street chaser or like <laughs> just gone the atomic <laughs> yeah, fire yeah. route but uh but yes yeah, i remember it. you played your case to him and he was like okay you know you guys are telling me this is your passion this is your statement this is what you want to put out there all right, we're we're on board. I 100% cannot imagine what it was like being Monty Connor R N R and Marcus Steiger, the owner of the label. Um, I cannot imagine what it was like to be them at that time because we were so just boots on the ground rooted, and yeah, there was no arguing with it. We we weren't we weren't faking any of that, and there definitely wasn't. Uh, the, I think the real thing that struck a nerve with you know the commercial side of your band when you're talking to, about commerce and bringing some product to somebody when yeah when you're uh when we were coming to it and uh saying if we like it then maybe other people will like it it's like the worst ethos for a record you can ever come to your label with you know but it's like that was t us telling them like, no, this is, we're doing this on purpose. This is not, we're not trying to, to be commercially viable. We're doing this because we like it. We were yeah. enjoying this. They were probably like, we thought you went to Ross because you wanted to make like a corn album. Yeah. You're like, no. <laughs> I mean, you're like, we love corn, but yeah, this isn't, we didn't try to make, you know. Everything about it. That's just such a wild, wild time. There was so many lessons learned. I mean, the amount of money we spent time we spent everything was just so extra and like not that it wasn't needed it was just we were we were like abusing our uh ability to do whatever the fuck we wanted we've always we've always been in that position because of the band kind of being semi either a full step or a couple steps ahead of where uh maybe the scene was yeah 
and we didn't really make any missteps and we were always given that 100% freedom to do whatever we wanted. And then when, you know, five records in, we were doing whatever that we, anything we wanted, just huge roll of the dice, but, and we've said it and it's totally the truth without making that record. We wouldn't have uh, been able to really see where, uh, what, what tools we have in our, in our toolbox that mm -hmm. are really ones that we need to take care of and sharpen and hone and, and focus on. Uh, it was a reset button almost in a was. way that you can't stop me is awesome, but it was also safe, you know, super safe. And it, and it needed to be safe yeah. in that moment. Cause it needed to just be like, don't worry everybody. The ship's still sailing, you know? Totally. But then, yeah. And I love that, that uh, blueprint from the beginning of, of having that, of having the idea of a catalog as opposed to just what's next, what's next, what's next, that you were able to have that foresight of like, here's what five records are going to look like. You know, oh yeah. Like yeah, that, yeah. We, we had that without a doubt. Pantera Metallica were the, were the, the blueprint. We knew what, we knew what we were trying to kind of, what we were going to add to the process, each record cycle. We were, we were thinking about all of that. And so the, la the last thing I want to get into with you and I'm such a tourist about this conversation uh, because, you know, I'm straight edge dude. I have three X's tattooed on my hand. Uh, certainly no disrespect to people that party and whatever. And, you know, I'm an, I'm an Al-Anon kid, I'm a child of a recovering alcoholic. And I've had a lot of, you know, I've lost friends to addiction and, and so on. It's a whole, you know, it's a whole other podcast, I suppose, but I just like to add that context because I'm certainly not coming from a, prohibitionist stance you know i've been i've been pro legalization for example of uh just about everything for a long time which isn't a very again kind of recalling something earlier where it's like you don't quite fit in mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> you know i'm not straight edge enough for a lot of straight edge <laughs> people i know having said that uh i have no interest in drinking i've i don't really have an interest in smoking weed i certainly don't want to do heroin or crack or meth or none of that no is a temptation for me at this point but man psychedelics are interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and a lot of you know and of course for me it's uh it's and again people who do psychedelics for the recreational aspect more power to them that doesn't interest me either it's it's more you know me the guy that does this podcast is the guy who's like i guess it's the promise of a shortcut in a way you mm -hmm. know of like uh skipping a few steps of the spiritual chain yeah. <laughs> and arriving, you know, and, and it was like mushrooms were one thing hearing about that and LSD. And I always got, uh, kind of thought, well, LSD, that's sort of like handmade. And then it's like, then you hear about mushrooms. They're like, mm. and then I started hearing about ayahuasca and I was like, mm. Mm -hmm. and then when I start talking to friends who have smoked DMT and it's mm -hmm. like, Oh, the shortcut of the shortcut of the shortcut. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, ayahuasca without the puking, mm -hmm. sweating or whatever. Yeah, it's it's endlessly uh, fascinating to me. So tell me, tell me your experience. You know, did you have you have you seen the have you seen the the the, the creatures that control <laughs> space uh, the, and time the, the, or the Terrence you know, McKenna, your... the, 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 the what is it? The mechanical uh, dimensional yeah, the mechanical gnomes. elves or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, I've really, I've seen, seen a lot of really 
crazy things. And it, the, the ayahuasca journey, um, really is such an immensely massive topic and conversation that it's, it's impossible and almost not worth trying to put into words because mm -hmm. it just cheapens it. It's almost like the Tao, like the spoken Tao is not the true Tao. There's, you know, only the Tao is the Tao. And that's the, the, the psychedelic journey. I would say that, um, I've been called to that sort of thing for almost my whole life. I just have always been aware of, I can look back and knowing about, you know, listening to music, there's so much mention of, you know, psychedelics or drugs. And there was always kind of this calling and curiosity to it. Um, and I would say from my experience, first of all, if you're young, if you're, I don't think that teenagers should be doing psychedelics. I, I think that, uh, you know, maybe 18 or 19 years old, but I think doing it too young is you, you can really see things maybe you're not ready for, and it can really alter how you are. And that's just how powerful these things really, how, how they, they will change you change your dna um, and your brain isn't fully formed yet your brain isn't fully formed yeah that's like the, pretty much the main one you don't i don't i don't i i think i shouldn't have been doing everything i was doing at such a young age and i will always say that um but man it's it's such a heavy topic that even finding a way to explain why it's important i feel like it's it, it just cheapens it. It is such a personal thing. And I see the way that this has become far more mainstream with the new age kind of thing. Sure. And I see how it's just becoming like, almost like a, a, it's like fashion. Like you can wear it's another thing on the checklist where it's like, I did a cold plunge. I did, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and that it, that aspect of, of psychedelics, I just feel like, if you're doing those, that's why I don't really talk about it that much is I just feel like it's such a personal thing that if you have a relationship with those things and you're able to go into to trying those things with intention, with disciplines you've practiced, with a, with a, a reason why you're doing them, not to party, you know, you want to learn something, you want to heal from something. Um, that's that's the only reason to be doing them. And once I learned that, once I went from partying and, you know, taking mushrooms for fun and all that, once I moved away from that and started to learn, like, you know what, I can actually eat mushrooms and sit in a dark room by myself with no music and just let this happen and come out of this with so much information and healing and, um, that will, that changed me forever. And that's why, you know, I don't, I don't take drugs for fun, <laughs> you know, and, and wow. they are drugs. You know, I think a yeah. lot of people will try to say, you know, these compounds or these things, they, because they can heal you depression or these medicines, PTSD, medicines, yeah. you know, all that stuff. This is all a huge, that's a, like you said, it's a whole other podcast because this is a huge reaction of, you know, prohibition type, uh, you know, governing 
the, I mean, the only reason why far different from, from psychedelics, but like cocaine is a, is a, it's, it's the coca leaf and it was, you know, it was demonized. And the reason why it's worth so much money and why it keeps a country countries oppressed and why all of that is because it's a reaction of the prohibition mm. of it. There wouldn't be a, a you know, this terrible economy in Colombia and people that are, you know, kind of almost forced into working into this, there wouldn't be any of that if there wasn't that reaction to it. So same thing with the psychedelics. It's like, they're so much more powerful than even just calling it like medicine. Like, I, I feel like it's, we are, we're not even in the preschool era of knowing what uh, psychedelics really can do for society for people um i guess the what i would say my journey and what i think is the biggest takeaway and what i will say about psychedelics is um i like i moved through my ptsd that i was unaware that i had um from from drinking ayahuasca i didn't know that i was dealing with something and when you introduce this to you in the proper setting and you were there with the, like I said, the right intentions, um, you get shown things and it's an immediate, I didn't even know this is why I was supposed to be here, but this is why I'm supposed to be here. And if you've ever truly felt love and gratitude, you are like gifted when you have those realizations, you're gifted this actual tangible feeling of full love and gratitude that it's, it's like nothing you've ever experienced before. And it can heal you of any trauma, any depressions that you've had or that you have or going through. It can, it can just release things you just never even knew were lingering in your, in your mind. And, um, It definitely not for everyone, but if it's something that you are called to, I feel like that is when it comes to the spiritual nature of things, that is something beyond us telling you, go for it. You know, you should be doing that. But if it's not called to you and you don't feel like you should be doing that, it's then I'm not the kind of person that thinks everybody should be out there drinking ayahuasca or trying LSD. You know, it's, it's really from person to person and it, it is it is the most intense and curious i'm the most curious about what why does dmt exist why does and, and you said lsd is kind of man-made lsd is not man-made lsd is is ergot nine it's a uh, albert hoffman i believe is who it was he was the reason why we discovered lsd was because he was tasked to log every organic compound in nature and he oh. discovered LSD nine, and it was from from Ergot. I didn't know that. So I always picture people, someone making it yeah. in the laboratory. Yeah. Oh. Well, you do have to, you know, chemically, sure. uh, you know, synthesize it. Um, but yeah, it's it's still it is an organic. It, it happens organically in nature. Um, it was made, if you believe things yeah, were that's, made. Yeah. 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 It's. Th it's a, it's a huge, this, the psychedelics thing is a huge, uh, 
it is its own it's its own podcast and if people are listening that have never tried um and think maybe it's you know if, if it, it's more of a, a something that's gonna like you said jumps jump you to something that you're not supposed to learn until death or learn until you know mm -hmm. uh, you're naturally supposed to um i really i think that the that we've been we have been experiencing psychedelic experiences long before we've ever actually been introduced to a psychedelic and taken psilocybin or taken dmt i think that the the psychedelic experience can can definitely happen naturally through cathartic uh, experiences something happens where it's like clarity comes and it's it's i think it is innate in who we are and is a part of that great mystery that it's possible that psychedelics and the experience are why we are who we are but why that's 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 why it's a it's a mystery and why we don't know everything <laughs> it's simple as that and that's also part of my spirituality i don't know anything man don't trust anybody that says they know anything like i know nothing i'm i'm a i want to learn is where i'm at you know um but yeah it's it's psychedelics mean so much to me that it's it's diff it's difficult for me to actually discuss without what i feel like people um they overshare their spiritual experiences and, and, and psychedelic and it kind of devalues it big time and you know and this is something that i've had I'm, i can't believe i'm just now connecting these two dots because this has happened to me in life i've had religious teachers uh, from different faith walks over the course of my life i've heard it said that uh when you when you do have a profound experience or something that seems miraculous or a moment where you know answered prayer that the more you talk about them though the the less meaning they have you know the more you start telling that story of like oh i was here and i, and I had the supernatural strength to lift the car off of this dog or whatever you know and yeah the more that story like you said that becomes a narrative and a story you've told yourself and you've told other people that actual profound moment of that experience starts to become diluted somehow it's just and like, i don't know i'm just connecting that dot with it it is like very much like that it's it's just like any memory that you're if you're if you have a memory you're going to tell a story about that memory and now that memory is actually that story the yeah. actual event is actually the actual event you remember the event or do you remember the picture that your mom showed you of that event exactly all the picture exactly. 20 years ago and you can remember the picture of being in that old house or whatever yeah. totally that's that and that's why uh you know little little side note but that's why journaling i think is so important if you mm -hmm. are if you're on any sort of spiritual path or you're on any sort of a self-development and growth kind of path you should be journaling daily and and reading back what you're what you're writing every once in a while uh that and that's where that's where all of my experiences lie is my my psychedelic journal and that's that's some crazy stuff because i, I <laughs> yeah, across different journals months later yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Or, or or five years later and you look at it and you're like holy shit and 
you know, back to what I said earlier, you can never go back to being that person, you know, and that's, you, you look at it and, and it's, it's a, it's cool to know you, you have a foundation and you are caring about where you are at that time. And now you're lo- reflecting on it in a healthy way. Mm. That's, that's, uh, that's huge for psychedelics, man. And I can't help, but it's no, it's not like I totally dislike this, the scene that's going on with all the psychedelic stuff, but man, it's just getting, I think it's getting a little bit just diluted and kids talking about <laughs> just freeing themselves from ego or ego death and freeing yourself from ego and all this stuff. I feel like that's so you have to be friends with your ego. You can't strip mm-hmm. your, you can't be egoless. You can't get rid of your ego. Like you have to know who you are and be aware of what you're doing to have any sort of step in the right direction. You can't just strip yourself of your ego. And, uh, and that's the dangers of, of, going too deep with the psychedelic stuff is you just you can you can drink the kool-aid and buy into it and start listening to the wrong person who's got the wrong advice and it's it's like anything like anything (laughs) like anything anything. yeah Yeah. and and again it's it's because of this the prohibitionist uh you know it is a reaction to all this stuff being demonized there's there's not proper information about it and we're just now starting to get there with with you know maps you know doing all of this the i don't even know what the what it stands for multi-associate something they they do they're the reason why marijuana is legal they're the reason why mdma has uh, these these trials um and yeah i, I guarantee with them within the next 10 years i bet all of this stuff is going to be legalized and you're we're going to know what kind of power MDMA especially that that is one one dose of MDMA with the proper person that's 15 years of of therapy for sure and it's so easy to do too it's it's not like a like an ayahuasca or a DMT where like that shit's gonna fucking blow your head off MDMA it's like you're getting the best hug from the universe and you know it's okay to cry you know kind of vibe and um, it's not as spiritual. It doesn't hit you at this, this, uh, gut wrenching spot. It, it just opens you up in the perfect way that if you need to work on something and you're with someone that you trust, it will, it will do exactly what you want it to almost guaranteed, but it'll also burn holes in your brain if you do too much. So <laughs> I wonder if it, I heard this great thing just a few days ago. And it, it's, it sort of weirdly applies here too, but, you know, and I was thinking about this when we were talking about, you know, Revolver declaring Suicide Silence, the next big metal band and all that. You're never as great as they say you are, and you're never as bad as they say you are. And we could probably apply that to <laughs> a lot of faith traditions and uh, tools and meditations and and anything else right like none of this stuff is probably as great as some people say it is and it's not as bad you know and like you said that reactionary uh that, that reactionary thing to the prohibition or it's like oh you know devil's lettuce you get a secondhand smoke of a joint and you're gonna go insane and you find out that's not true 
but then you could go over the other deep end where you're like, well, if, if they were lying about that, then I should, you know, should be able to shoot heroin every day, <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's not as bad as they said it was, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's all completely good. Absolutely. So, well, dude, I, I can't think of a better place to land the plane than where you, uh, you know, like you said, the, the mystery and not knowing. And if there's a reoccurring theme to this podcast, you know, I have my, values and convictions and kind of the framework that I like to look at the stuff through. But my, the biggest change in my worldview and my life as an adult has come in recent years where, you know, I was in pursuit of certainty for most of my life and now I'm living in the uncertainty mm. and it's so much better here. Yeah. <laughs> You know, constantly trying that. to claw and scratch to get to the truth of everything and have the answers and know mm -hmm. and then realizing like, man, the unknowing is so much more awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It means you can learn more. It means that there's so much more to, to absorb and be open to. It's, it's the ultimate surrender indeed <laughs> you know and if you're if if you if it's it's so cliche but if you look at it you know as everything is as the river and we're flowing with it if you're not in surrender to all of it then you're just resisting and probably you're hitting creating. the rocks every 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 step yeah. of the way <laughs> yeah gassing yourself out yeah it's, yeah it's a, it's super important and yeah and that's that's really what my that's what my dad you know, if I'm going to close off where I'm coming from, that's what you just said is where my dad was while he was on hospice was, mm. and, and even a little prior to that, but he was just no more, uh, no more knowing. I do not know, you know, and I, and I don't, I don't need to know. I don't, it's not, if I don't know it, then I'm not meant to know it, you know, and it was fr super freeing for him. And if, if, if you're able to do it in your life, it's even better. You know, it's, it doesn't, doesn't, didn't take you till your deathbed to, to realize that there is no, there's no certainty. <laughs> and to quote the great Michael Scott, I've never understood deathbeds. I mean, <laughs> who would buy that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, dude, all the love in the world to you. And all the honor and reverence to to Mitch, to your father, to your friend from high school, uh, to uh, the art that you're creating and reciprocating and this exchange that your music and everything puts out there into the world. Um, nothing but respect and support. And I'm so glad you came on to do this. It, it was, I knew it was going to be awesome and it was even better than I anticipated. So <laughs> thank you for well, that. Well, thank you very much. All the love to you. And uh Thanks for having me on. And yeah, this was, a, this was probably one of the more enjoyable podcasts I've ever done. So thank you. Yeah.